Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning. Welcome to Teddy Talks for April 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future site of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library Museum, and this summer a destination for all of us that will enjoy getting together and enjoying the great outdoors. I'd like to start today's program with uh, one of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, quotations. This is a quick one. If you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. And I am feeling uh, uh, the, uh, the wisdom of those words uh, this day. On this date in history, in 1775, the midnight ride of Paul Revere and William Dawes, riding from Charlestown, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, out to Lexington, the following day after their call of the British are coming or the regulars are coming the following day, April 19th, uh, the uh, shots heard round the world, the battles of Lexington and Concord. The war uh, initiated uh, on those fields would end eight years later when fighting would cease in 1783 on that very same day of April 18th. In 1916, Edith Wharton, the author and a dear friend of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, is appointed Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, France's highest award for her contribution to the war effort. Previously in postings here, we put a picture up of Edith Wharton uh, in France, uh, Archie and Quentin pictured in uniform with Edith Wharton. Uh, her efforts to bring aid to the people of Belgium under German occupation, uh, efforts supported by Theodore Roosevelt, uh, they were uh, of tremendous import to the people of Belgium and the war relief effort uh, that began even before the United States was in the war benefited greatly from Edith Wharton and her work. On this date in 1939 in Chicago, Illinois, the birth of Sue Wiegand, now Sue O'Hagan, point of personal privilege, happy 81st birthday, Auntie Sue. And of course, on this day, April 18th, 1906, the great San Francisco earthquake uh, kills nearly 4,000, a good deal of that from 
a disease, dysentery uh, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, fire uh, destroying uh, uh, the earthquake and the subsequent fires destroying some 75% of the uh, buildings in the city of San Francisco on this date in 1906. So remembering those victims and in the spirit of understanding that uh, our federal government uh, has and continues to help lead the response to these tragedies and, and uh, in this case today, the pandemic, uh, members of the National Guard uh, and our military, the, uh, the uh, ships, uh, the Navy's uh, hospital ships uh, now in San Francisco, right, and New York City. So uh, again, our thanks to all of those who are serving under these difficult circumstances. I thought what I would do is uh, read to you a message from President Roosevelt in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, uh, demonstrating some of the response that came from Washington, D.C. and from the War Department, headed at that time by Secretary of War William Howard Taft, uh, he having been appointed following the resignation of Elihu Root uh, prior to Root's uh, run again for the Senate. In 1903, though, Theodore Roosevelt made his first ever visit to California. Uh, he was elected vice president in 1900, and uh, uh, McKinley and Roosevelt were elected in that election year. Even though Theodore Roosevelt toured the western states during that campaign, uh, he never made it to California. The, it wasn't a, a tremendously strategically important state, uh, almost guaranteed to be, uh, guaranteed to be a uh, Republican uh, leaning state in those days, the uh, the heritage of uh, General uh, Fremont, uh, the first Republican candidate for the presidency in 1856, still being strong there in California, and that state founded and, and statehood coming during that time of uh, the Civil War under Lincoln's pen. So in 1903, Theodore Roosevelt, I think, was really taken with California, and most especially with San Francisco. So a couple of his remarks from May 12th of 1903. These are, these are shorter speeches that he made, and, and there's still enough from his uh, two, three-day visit in San Francisco in 1903 that when we get to uh, mid-May, if, if we need to flesh out some of what TR was doing in California on those dates, uh, we still have plenty of San Francisco speeches. Uh, this first speech is at the dedication of the building of the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, done in San Francisco, California, May 12th, 1903, by President Theodore Roosevelt. Mr. Chairman, and you, my fellow citizens, men and women of this great city, of this great state, few things could have given me more pleasure than the privilege of taking part at this dedication, free of debt, of this building to the uses for which it is dedicated it would be hard to overestimate the amount of good work done by the Young Men's Christian Associations and the Young Women's Christian Associations. I well remember that I used to feel for a long time indignant that there were not Young Women's Christian Associations also, and how pleased I was when they started and the development they attained. It seems to me that the YMCA has been able to a very marked degree to combine that practical efficiency in action and adherence to a lofty ideal which should be the aim of all decent citizenship throughout our country. Of course, it is not enough to have mere efficiency, 
The more efficient a man is, the more dangerous he is, if that efficiency is not guided by the proper type of spirit, by the proper sense of moral responsibility. Of course, it is a mere truism to say that the very abilities, physical, mental, moral, that the very abilities of the body, the mind, and the soul, which make a man potent for good, if they are guided aright, make him dangerous to himself and to the whole community, if they are guided wrong. And the man who, because of his strength, because of his courage, of his power, can do best work for decency, if these attributes are used in the proper service, will do most harm, if there is no guiding principle behind them. As I say, that is a mere truism. You, all of you know, in dealing in your own families, with your neighbors, in your relations with the state, that strength of any kind, physical, mental, is but a source of danger if it is not guided aright. On the other hand, it is just as important for every man or woman who is striving for decency to keep ever in mind the further fact that unless there is power, efficiency behind the effort for decency, scant is the good that will come. It is not enough to have mere aspiration after righteousness. It is not enough to have the lofty ideal. With it must go the power of, in some sort of practically realizing it. The cloistered virtue which fears the rough contact with the world can avail but little in our eminently practical civilization of today. In the rough and tumble life made necessary by, inevitably attendant upon, the development of a strong and masterful people working out its fate through the complex industrialism of this age. With decency, there must go the power practically to apply it in life, practically to work it out, to work it out for the benefit of others as well as for oneself. The YMCA stands for so much because it represents the work of men and women who, to a generous enthusiasm for their fellows, to a lofty ideal of service for the giver of good and for all mankind, join the power to realize that ideal in practical ways, the power to work concretely for the attainment of at least some measure of the good sought. I have come across the work of the Young Men's Christian Association in many different walks of life. I do not know any branch of it that has done better work than the branch connected with the railway organizations, for instance, and I naturally feel a peculiar interest in and rejoice peculiarly over the work done among the soldiers and sailors wearing the uniform of the United States government. Every decent American ought to be proud of the Army and the Navy of Uncle Sam. Therefore, it is pe peculiarly incumbent upon us to see that the man in that Army or Navy as a help given in the right way, not the wrong way, that he is given a chance for wholesome amusement, a chance to lead an upright and honorable life in his hours of relaxation. Another thing the YMCA represents, and that is knowledge of human nature. You are not going to do very much good with human nature if you attempt to take the bad out of it by leaving a vacuum, for that vacuum is going to be filled with something and if you do not fill it with what is good, it will be filled with what is evil. The Young Men's Christian Association represents the effort to provide for the body as well as for the mind, 
to help young men to educate themselves, to train themselves for the practical life as well as for the higher life, and to give them amusement and relaxation that will educate and not debase them. In other words, the YMCA and all its branches is working for civic and social righteousness, for decency, for good citizenship. There is no patent recipe for getting good citizenship. You get it by applying the old, old rules of decent conduct, the rules in accordance with which decent men have had to shape their lives from the beginning. A good citizen, a man who stands as he should stand in his relation to the state, to the nation, must first of all be a good member of his own family, a good father or son, brother or husband, a man who does right the thing that is nearest, a man who is a good neighbor, and I use neighbor broadly, who handles himself as his self-respect should bid him handle himself in his relations with the community at large, in his relations with those whom he employs or by whom he is employed, with those with whom he comes in contact in any form of business relations or in any other way. If there is one lesson which I think each of us learns as he grows older, it is that it is not what the man works at, provided, of course, it is respectable and honorable in character that fixes his place. It is the way he works at it. Providence working in ways that to us are inscrutable conditions, our lives so that few that be, but few men can choose exactly the work they would like best. One man finds that his lines lie in pleasant places, another not. One man finds that to him is allotted one task, and another that he must undertake an entirely different task. All the tasks are necessary. Every man engaged in this great city on this day, in any of the innumerable kinds of work necessary to the legitimate life of the city, is himself doing necessary and honorable work. And if we are sincere in our professions of adherence to the principle laid down by the founder of Christianity, if we are sincere in our professions of adherence to the immutable laws of righteousness, we will honor in others and ourselves the power of each to do decently and well the work allotted to him and ask nothing further than that. If we can get ourselves and the community at large really imbued with that spirit, nine-tenths of the difficulties that beset us will vanish. For far more important in causing trouble than any material misery or material misfortune is the moral misery, the moral misfortune, or the moral wrongdoing which, on the one hand, makes a man arrogant to those whom he regards as less well off than himself, and which, on the other hand, manifests itself in the equally base shape of rancor, hate, envy, or jealousy for those better off. One form of misconduct is just as bad as the other. And to preach against either only to those afflicted by the other does no good. When we practically realize that the worth lies in the way of doing the work, that that applies whether your work is that of employer or employed, of townsman or countryman, of the man who works with his head or the man who works with his hands, when we practically realize that each man will have too much respect for himself and for his brother ever to permit himself either to look down upon that brother or to regard him with envy and jealousy, either one, 
When we get that spirit in the community, we will have taken a longer stride toward at least an imperfect realization in this world of the principle of applied Christianity than has ever been taken in the world before. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share in however small a degree in the work that you are doing, and I wish you Godspeed. As I traveled throughout the country, uh, following in Theodore Roosevelt's footsteps, I very often found that uh, his path led uh, to some town in Iowa or uh, some place in the country where he was dedicating the YMCA newly built. And when the Panama Canal was built in the Canal Zone, it was the uh, YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, that provided uh, many of the uh, entertainments and libraries and uh, table tennis and all that sort of thing that uh, were healthy uh, endeavors for our canal workers. On that same date, May 12, 1903, at a banquet tendered by the citizens of San Francisco at the Palace Hotel, Theodore Roosevelt had these brief remarks. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Governor, and you, my hosts, let me thank you with all my heart for the more than kindness, the more than courtesy and cordiality with which I have been treated in California from the hour when I first set foot within her borders. Governor, the message that I shall send back is, I have come to California, I have seen, and I have been conquered by California's citizens and California's government. And Mr. Mayor, as you said in your speech, the thing that has struck me most coming here, coming from the East through the West and West of the West to California, the thing that has struck me most is that though I have never been in your great state and beautiful state before, though I have known your citizens only as I met them elsewhere, I am absolutely at home for I am speaking as one American to his fellow Americans. I have been pleased with the diversity of the country, but, oh, my fellow countrymen, I have been pleased infinitely more with the unity of our country. While I am not by inheritance a Puritan, I have acquired certain traits, one of which is an uneasy feeling which I think a large number of Americans share, that when we are having a good time, it is not quite right. During the week that I have been in California, I have enjoyed myself so much that I have had a slight feeling that maybe I was not quite doing my duty, but I cannot say that I am penitent about it. And now, my fellow citizens, let me try to express, for I can only try, I cannot fully express, how I have enjoyed and appreciated my visit to California, my sojourn among you. It has been a genuine revelation, for while I knew of much that I should see, I could not realize it until I had seen it. I think I was a fairly good American a week ago when I came into your state, but I am a better one now, and even more confident in the nation's future, more resolute to whatever in my power lies to bring about that future. I thank you. I thank the citizens of the Golden State for their greeting. I rejoice with you in the wonderful prosperity of California. That prosperity is but part of the prosperity of the whole nation. 
Speaking broadly, prosperity must of necessity come to all of us or to none of us. There are sporadic exceptions. Of course, we all of us know people who cannot be made prosperous by any season of good fortune. There will be exceptions, individual and local, but the law of brotherhood is the universal law, the law upon which the well-being of this nation is based. And taken as a whole, we can state with absolute certainty that if good times come, they will come more or less to all sections and all classes, and that if hard times come, while they may bear unequally upon us, yet more or less they bear upon each state, upon each set of individuals. For weal or for woe, we of this country are indissolubly bound together. In the long run, we shall go up or go down accordingly as the whole nation goes up or goes down. Therefore, it is that no more wicked deed can be done than the deed of him who would seek to make any of our people believe that they can rise by trampling down their fellows. No more wicked appeal can be made than the appeal to rancor, to hatred, to jealousy, whether made in the name of a section or in the name of a class. The Golden State has a future of even brighter promise than most of her older sisters, and yet the future is bright for all of us. California, still in her youth, can look forward to such growth as only a few of her sisters can share. Yet there are immense possibilities of growth for all our states from one end of the Union to the other. In this growth, in keeping and increasing our prosperity, the most important factor must be the character of our citizenship. Nothing can take the place of the average quality of energy thrift, business enterprise, and sanity in our community as a whole. Unless the average individual in our nation has to a high degree the qualities that command success, we cannot expect to deserve it or to keep what it brings. Our future is, in my opinion, well assured from the very fact that there is this high degree of character in the average American citizen. I cannot overemphasize the fact that law, and the administration of the law can merely supplement and help to give full play to the forces that make the individual man a factor of usefulness in the community. If the individual citizen has not got the right stuff in him, you cannot get it out of him, because it is not there to get out. No law that uh, the wit of man has ever devised, ever has made or ever will make the fool wise, the coward brave, or the weakling strong. When we get down to those places where you see humanity in the raw, then it is the native strength of the man that will count more than aught else. And we cannot afford in this community ever to weaken the spirit of individual initiative, ever to make any man believe that if he cannot walk himself, somehow the law can carry him. It cannot. There is but one real way in which any man can be helped, and that is by teaching him to help himself. Remember that the factor of the sum of the individual's own qualities comes first. With that admitted, with that kept in mind, it is then true that something, and oftentimes a good deal, can be done by wise legislation and by upright, honest, and fearless enforcement of the laws, an enforcement of the laws which must and shall know no respect of persons, laws local, laws state, laws national. We have attained our present position of economic well-being 
of economic leadership in the international business world under a tariff policy in which I think our people as a whole have acquiesced as essentially wise, alike from the standpoint of the manufacturer, the merchant, the farmer, and the wage worker. Doubtless, as our needs shift, it will be necessary to reapply in its details this system so as to meet those shifting needs. But it would certainly seem from the standpoint of our business interests, and such a question, primarily a business question, should be approached only from the standpoint of our business interests, it would seem most unwise to abandon the general policy of the system under which our success has been so signaled. In financial matters, we are to be congratulated upon having definitely determined that our currency system must rest upon a gold basis, for to follow any other course would have meant disaster so widespread that it would be difficult to overestimate it. There is, however, unquestionably need of enacting further financial legislation so as to provide for greater elasticity in our currency system. At present, there are certain seasons during which the rigidity of this system causes a stringency most unfortunate in its effects. The last Congress, in its wisdom, took up and disposed of various matters of vital moment, such as those dealing with the regulation and supervision of the great corporations commonly known as trusts, with securing in effective fashion the abolition of rebates by transportation companies, that is, with securing fair play as between the big man and the little man in getting their products to market, and in initiating the national system of irrigation. So in my judgment, the Congress that is to assemble next fall should take up and dispose of the pressing questions relating to banking and currency. I believe that such action will be taken, and I am sure that it ought to be taken. It is needed in the interest of the business world, and it is needed even more in the interest of the world of producers, of earth tillers, of men who make their living by the products of the farm and the ranch. Such, such action would supplement in fitting style the excellent work that has already been done in recent years in regard to our monetary system. There always will be enough wise legislation and an even greater need of the wisdom which recognizes when the wisest policy is to have no legislation. And it is of prime importance to us to remember that we cannot afford to condone in public life any deviation from the principles of common sense and of rugged honesty which we deem essential in private and business life. There is no royal road to good government. Good government comes to the nation, the bulk of whose people show in their relations to that government the humdrum, ordinary, workaday virtues, and it comes and can come upon no other condition. We need the best intellectual skill. We need the most thorough training in public life. But such skill and such training can be only supplementary to, and in some sense substitutes for, the fundamental virtues that have marked every great and prosperous nation since the dim years when history dawned, the fundamental virtues of decency, honesty, courage, hardihood, the spirit of fair dealing as between man and man, the spirit that dares, that foresees, that endures, that triumphs, added to all those qualities, the saving grace of common sense.
Theodore Roosevelt's remarks at a banquet uh, uh, in May of 1903, but giving you a sense of, I think, uh, the real elation that Theodore Roosevelt felt traveling through, uh, as he said, the uh, Golden State uh, on uh, uh, the dates in May in 1903, uh, still at that point, I think, bound for Yosemite and his three days and nights of camping and tramping with John Muir. The earthquake was devastating in San Francisco. Of course, the means of communication, uh, telegram uh, primarily, coming from San Francisco, alerting the nation. General Frederick Funston uh, being uh, in charge of uh, the United States Army, a brigadier general and a fascinating fellow, uh, born in Ohio and then uh, moving at the age of two to, uh, uh, to Kansas with his family, born at the, uh, in the year of the conclusion of the Civil War, uh, so in 1867, the Funston family is in Kansas. In 1884, Frederick Funston applied for admission to West Point, the United States Military Academy. And at five foot four and 120 pounds, uh, Funston's application was rejected. He enrolled in the University of Kansas. Uh, he did not graduate, but attended most of four years there, during which time he became fast friends with William Allen White, uh, subsequently a journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, a sage of Emporia. And, uh, and Funston joined White as a young journalist in Kansas for a year uh, and then set off as, as an explorer, joining some of the exploratory teams that uh, investigated uh, Death Valley in California and off to Alaska. And then, in 1896, Frederick Funston, following a rousing speech on behalf of the cause of Cuba Libre in New York City, Frederick Funston joined the Cuban Revolutionary Army and went and fought in Cuba against Spain as a, a soldier of fortune. Uh, this uh, reminds me of the Lincoln Brigade that uh, joined the uh, Spanish Republican forces uh, in the uh, Spanish Civil War in the, the, the decades that would follow. So Funston's fighting in Cuba, and uh, he is uh, nearly killed by malaria. Uh, his body weight is reduced to 95 pounds. He's sent home, uh, given leave by the uh, Cuban Revolutionary Army, uh, a time during which he recuperates, marries, and joins the uh, Kansas 20th uh, Infantry Regiment, uh, which is then sent to the Philippines. In the Philippines in 1899, Funston, a colonel, uh, serves with such valor and distinction, uh, swimming a, a river and marching troops across a, another swollen body of water. Uh, he captures a Filipino position and is subsequently, in 1900, awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. In 1901, uh, it is uh, uh, during that uh, time that Funston actually plans and then successfully deploys and executes uh, the action that uh, results in the capture of Emilio Aguinaldo, the, uh, uh, the titular head of the Philippine revolutionary government fighting against the United States. And, and uh, uh, Funston became quite a hero as a result in the American press. Touring the United States, uh, still active duty military, now Brigadier General uh, Frederick Funston in Denver, makes uh, comments uh, uh, strongly against the United States Senator from uh, Maine, uh, George Frisbee Hoare, uh, 
who is a strong anti-imperialist. Uh, we think of the uh, war in Cuba and the Philippines as being something advocated by Republicans, President McKinley, Vice President Roosevelt, uh, 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 at the time Assistant Secretary of the Navy Roosevelt. But in that, then as president, uh, we associate this with a Republican administration. But we must remember that uh, leading Republicans, especially from that section of New England, uh, men like Senator George Frisbee Hoare, or uh, uh, the uh, the czar of the House, Thomas Reed of, uh, uh, of Portland, Maine. Uh, Reed resigned rather than running for re-election as Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, third in line for the presidency of the United States, so disgusted by our policies in Cuba that that, that Republican uh, resigned his position. Theodore Roosevelt, though, when Funston makes his remarks for the public, uh, castigating the senator for his anti-imperialist views, uh, T.R. was rather furious, canceled Funston's furlough, and ordered the man silenced. Uh, Funston would go on to do uh, some amazing things in service to the United States, uh, but uh, perhaps nothing quite amazing is what he did in uh, the aftermath of the San Francisco earthquake. Immediately, Funston began uh, to have resources sent by the quartermaster's uh, office in the United States Army and the War Department, the tents, rations, uh, over 900,000 rations acquired that first day, uh, rations being sufficient for uh, three meals for a soldier in the field. It was uh, a situation where most of the military stores in San Francisco themselves uh, had been uh, destroyed in the earthquake and the subsequent fire uh, these were to provide for the needs of the United States military along the uh, California coast and, and also for the Philippines. And so the loss of those uh, supplies uh, exacerbated uh, the situation in San Francisco, made it more difficult for the Army and the Navy to come to the aid of the people there. Amongst the most controversial things uh, Frederick Funston did, he declared martial law, had no authority to do so. so Martial law was not technically in effect at the time, but he operated as if it was, uh, using uh, ordnance, uh, both uh, uh, cannon uh, and shipboard cannon, but also explosives and incendiaries of different sorts. Funston attempted to do what instinct uh, and, and uh, a good firefighting uh, instructed him to do, and that was to destroy a certain number of buildings that would create a fire break. That, uh, uh, if uh, the open air balloon structures made of wood weren't available to provide new fuel to the fires that were spreading throughout the city, that uh, this would uh, result in a fire break. Unfortunately, a great number of the explosives used by the Army and the Navy were incendiary explosive devices. Uh, there were probably actually more fires started by the United States military in attempting to uh, uh, build these fire breaks than, than they actually uh, wound up putting out. Also, uh, Frederick Funston issued uh, shoot-on-sight orders uh, for those that would be uh, spotted looting. It's uh, surmised that there were probably some innocent victims of, uh, of military enforcement of the shoot-on-sight order uh, for looters. The situation in San Francisco was so extremely dire, uh, not only in the immediate uh, time of the earthquake and the fires, but in the conditions that resulted in the days following, after the 18th, uh, on the 19th, 20th, 21st, people without, were without food, they were without shelter, they were generally without fresh water, and I'll come to that in a moment, but the, um, the instance of the earthquake 
uh, not only ruined a good portion of the water delivery system that was available in the city, but so much of what was uh, uh, built for the water system of the city and for the fire hydrants and the water supply for fire suppression. It was found to be antiquated, uh, in ill repair, and we would subsequently learn that the municipal government of uh, Mayor Eugene Schmitz, uh, the mayor who was on the rostrum with the president in 1903 in San Francisco, the administration was so fraught with corruption, it doesn't take much for each of you, I think, to imagine uh, what the results of corruption are with regards to something like a municipal water system. The emphasis wasn't put on accomplishing the goal of delivering a sure and steady supply of water, even in the uh, situation of an emergency, but instead it was about jobs and patronage and kickbacks to the, uh, to the political bosses. In this case, uh, famously, Abe Roof, uh, the head of the, uh, uh, the, head of the uh, uh, San Francisco uh, political uh, machine at the time. Uh, Frederick Funston uh, would go on after the actions in San Francisco, again, in which he was generally regarded as being heroic and efficient and guided by those right principles uh, of which we read from Roosevelt's speech. Uh, he would go on to serve uh, domestically uh, in the United States, return to the Philippines, and lead uh, the American Army's efforts in Mexico, uh, in charge of the occupation of Veracruz, uh, in charge of the effort to capture Pancho Villa, uh, the Mexican bandit. So uh, he had uh, under his command uh, not only uh, General John Joseph Pershing, uh, then uh, still a captain, not, not yet promoted to the generalship by Roosevelt, but also one or two of the Roosevelt uh, sons uh, serving. I believe the uh, older boys, uh, Ted and Kermit. But, um, need to double check those facts. So that uh, then brings me to the fact that uh, Frederick Funston was regarded as the man that would lead the American forces in Europe uh, if and when the United States joined that war. Uh, Frederick Funston, at the age of 51, died of a massive heart attack uh, in San Antonio. Uh, it was uh, Douglas MacArthur that brought word uh, in the Wilson White House where he was serving as a military aide, brought word to uh, President Wilson of the death of Frederick Funston. It would, uh, as a result of that death, wind up that uh, General John Joseph Pershing, Black Jack Pershing, would lead the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe. Uh, but uh, had he lived, very likely that to Frederick Funston would have gone the glories of leading the American forces in Europe. After the, uh, after the earthquake, much did come to light as uh, journalists, uh, maybe that muckraking press we spoke of the other day, investigated the uh, corruption of the Schmitz uh, and Roof administ political administrations in San Francisco, such that in 1907, Mayor Schmitz was convicted of extortion, sentenced to five years in San Quentin, and uh, that uh, conviction reversed on appeal in the California courts. Uh, in 1912, on trial again for bribery uh, and uh, acquitted uh, in that particular case when uh, one uh, uh, imprisoned uh, uh, witness, Abe Roof, the political boss, uh, he was at San Quentin and refused to testify. The other man, a, a supervisor who could have testified, fled to uh, Canada, so uh, uh, acquitted of bribery. Uh, Mayor Schmitz ran for re-election uh, in 1915 and 1919, 
and uh, was not embraced in that effort by the people of San Francisco. In the aftermath of the earthquake, uh, Mayor Schmitz was included in a delegation from California that came to Washington, D.C. to plead the case in front of Congress, and uh, President Theodore Roosevelt refused to meet with Mayor Schmitz uh, during uh, Mayor Schmitz's time at, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C. This is interesting, uh, quickly uh, read today. I think just the, uh, just the cover notation from the president's message uh, to Congress uh, for relief for San Francisco. Uh, he's presenting to them a letter of the Secretary of War, that's William Howard Taft, and uh, many of the accompanying documents that uh, are mentioned are just uh, tables and uh, communications that uh, detail uh, down to uh, the bottom dollar and cent what is being sent from the uh, War Department to aid the people of San Francisco. So this message, three days after the earthquake, April 23rd, 21st, 1906. To the Senate and House of Representatives, I submit herewith a letter of the Secretary of War with accompanying documents, including a form of a resolution suge suggested for passage by the Congress. This letter refers to the appalling catastrophe which has befallen San Francisco and the neighboring cities. A catastrophe more appalling than any other of the kind that has befallen any portion of our country during its history. I am sure that there is need on my part of no more than a suggestion to the Congress in order that this resolution may be at once passed. But I urge that instead of appropriating a further sum of $1 million as recommended by the Secretary of War, the appropriation be for a million and a half dollars. The supplies already delivered or en route for San Francisco approximate in value a million and a half dollars, which is more than we have the authority in law as yet to purchase. I do, uh, I do not think it's safe for us to reckon upon the need of spending less than a million in addition. Large sums are being raised by private subscription in this country, and very generous offers have been made to assist us by individuals of other countries, which requests, however, I have refused, as in my judgment there is no need of any assistance from outside our own borders. This refusal, of course, in no way lessening our deep appreciation of the kindly sympathy which has prompted such offers. The detailed account of the action of the War Department is contained in the appendices to the letter of the Secretary of War. At the moment, our concern is purely with meeting the terrible emergency of the moment. Later, I shall communicate with you as to the generous part which I am sure the national government will take in meeting the more permanent needs of the situation, including, of course, rebuilding great governmental structures which have been destroyed. I hope that the action above requested can be taken today. Theodore Roosevelt, the White House, April 21st. 1906. I do appreciate you being here today uh, on this Saturday, or if you come to this broadcast over the weekend, uh, there will be no uh, program tomorrow on Sunday, the 19th of April. I'll post a little something tonight that uh, President Theodore Roosevelt wrote with regards to the MICA mandate, uh, something about which Theodore Roosevelt said that the teachings of the New Testament are foreshadowed by the Old Testament prophet Micah. And so join uh, us on Monday. We'll have a full schedule of programs Monday through Saturday here at Teddy Talks. My thanks to everyone at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation for making this available. 
on YouTube and Spotify. And again, thank you for your interest in Theodore Roosevelt and American history. And when we're ready, let's all make some plans to gather and celebrate our fine American heritage here in Medora, North Dakota, where Theodore Roosevelt said he spent the romance or the romance of his life again. All the best. Take care. Have a great weekend. Bye from Medora.